If you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands, you've come to the right place. This is the Bulletproof Entrepreneur, featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneurs across Africa. Here's your host, Chi Odogu. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Happy New Year, Happy New Year, Happy New Year. Welcome to 2016. Thanks for tuning in once again to the Odeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur podcast. It's your host, Chi Odogu. It's great to be back on the airwaves, bringing you amazing interviews with amazing entrepreneurs across emerging markets. Yes, I'm changing it up a little. This year, we're going to expand beyond Africa and bring in some more entrepreneurs from other emerging markets because I noticed there were some similarities that um, African entrepreneurs share with some other entrepreneurs from emerging market countries. So although our primary focus is African entrepreneurs, we shall be including other emerging market entrepreneurs so that way we get to learn and adapt some of the things they're seeing in their countries. Yeah, so that's what's going to happen. So with that said, we're going to kick off the new year with um, an interview that I really have to apologize that this has happened. I didn't know that I had not heard this episode and this is quite terrible. So... I had recorded an episode sometime in late March, early April of 2015. And I thought, I sincerely thought I had heard the interview because the photo was on my website. Well, unbeknownst to me, as I was doing the annual review for the podcast, I realized that the interview was not published. And so I'm so sorry, Yossi, for taking almost this long to publish our interview i i really don't it's it's basically my bad and i really do apologize i don't want people to feel that oh they take the time to talk to me for almost an hour and then i do nothing with that content because yeah this could have been very timely then but i do know that um the purpose of these interviews is to make sure that they are basically timeless so whether it's a week or a month after I interview and I air the episode or even a decade later, not just a year later, that the listener, you, can always get something valuable and apply it for use to the rest of your life. So with that said, um, I'm so sorry, Yossi. You deserve better than this. And I do want to promise everyone else that I interview and those that listen to the show that I will... Definitely, definitely, definitely endeavor that this never happens again. So that means um, stringent reviews on my systems to make sure that every interview is aired within a very reasonable time frame. And with that said, guys, please do enjoy the fantastic interview I had with um, Yossi Hassan of Senec, South Africa. And you're really going to love this one, guys. There's so many wisdom nuggets hidden in this interview so please do enjoy the first episode of the 2016 season and then i am going to air some practical applications for how you're going to try and program and live and get the best out of 2016 so typically that would have been the first episode and then the primary two the rest of the interviews but like i said because of this um, terrible mistake on my end I'm going to mix things up and have this episode aired right away and then we'll release the primer and then continue with the rest of the 2016 season. And it's going to be good, guys. Trust me. So with that said, without further ado, here's the interview with Yossi Hassan of Senec. Okay. Good morning, guys. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Yossi Hassan. He's the co-founder and MD of Synac, one of South Africa's leading hosted email and internet security services. Yossi and his co-founder, David Jacobson, founded the company in 2012, so that's roughly over 10 years ago. And thus far, they've been able to um, work with clients in the SME space, helping them with their email services and inboxes. So Yossi's company currently has clients in South Africa and Zambia, and he's here to tell us a little bit about his 
background, how he and his co-founder started the company, and where they see the company going in the future. Yossi, welcome to the show. Could you please tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Thanks Thanks for uh, the time, and it's good to be here. Uh, a little bit about myself. Uh, born and raised in Johannesburg in South Africa, and um, from a very young age, uh, always knew I wanted to be a uh, businessman or entrepreneur, and uh, was involved all through school, selling things, getting involved in uh, little businesses here and there, uh, s- selling products at uh, flea markets, and uh, in high school built a, a website that uh, helped students connect with each other by sharing pictures. This was in the year 2000 and uh, enable them to get a free email account and message each other uh, and did that in high school and it had some success. Uh, and afterwards, I uh, decided not to go to university and would rather pursue uh, my business dreams and started one or two businesses. Uh, and I've always just really been involved in, in this entrepreneurial space. Wow, great. So let's talk a bit about your experiences as an entrepreneur in high school. So did you program this um, messaging app that you were talking about? And this was, what, maybe early 2000 or 1990? Uh, early 2000. Um, wow, so the internet wasn't what it was today. <laughs> it, it definitely wasn't what it, what it was today. I was working uh, part-time while I was in school. I was working for an internet service provider. Okay. And um, while I was there, it was the most amazing environment. I was uh, 16 years old, and I was working with 21, 22-year-old uh, guys uh, who were uh, learning HTML and uh, and JavaScript for the first time, and those were, were progressive uh, uh, technologies and uh, learning Photoshop and how to design. And uh, really, it was like a kid in a candy store getting access to kind of all of this technology. Uh, and that's how I built uh, the the website. Metric 2000 is what it was called, okay. uh, and put and put that together. I learned how to code in HTML uh, and JavaScript, uh, as well as how to do a bit of graphic design and use the combination of all of that to, to put the site together. But it was really in the infancy of, of the internet in South Africa and um, and probably didn't see the, the potential of it. Uh, we had about uh, two to 3,000 students on it communicating every day, but I kind of saw it as a hobby. And, uh, and after school, uh, even though we had a few advertisers and was making a bit of money, uh, I didn't really see it as the as a big potential business, social social media hadn't existed yet or the term didn't and I didn't have the vision to see it as more than just a, a hobby in high school. Oh, okay. So after high school, typically you'd go to college or varsity, right? So what, what prompted you to decide not to go to college and inside, instead pursue an entrepreneurial career? And how did your parents react to that? It's a good question. I think at the time I was uh, the, the, the the birth of these dot-com businesses as well as these young hotshot entrepreneurs, people like Bill Gates, Michael Dell, Steve Jobs, uh, all with their stories of starting these tech companies and not going to college or dropping out of college and becoming these millionaire billionaires uh, was was the kind of story that I uh, related to and said, well, that's something that I, I would like to do. And uh, university is a, is a bit of a waste of time. Uh, I've, I've got experience in this tech space. We're building these websites. Uh, and I wanted, I was in a hurry to to get into that uh, into that stream, and uh, varsity just seemed like a, a distraction, uh, and was something that the, a corporate person would do. If I wanted to go and build a career, then I would go to university uh, and do that. Uh, my parents, for them, uh, they they were they're immigrants to South Africa. Both of them never went to university, and they worked very very hard to provide for myself and my family. And I have two older sisters who both, uh, the one's an optometrist, the other is a dentist. So they both went into the medical profession and studied and uh, were were great academics and students. Uh, So it was hard for my parents to hear that uh, I didn't want to go to university and I wanted to go and start a business. Um, But uh, being the good parents that they are, they just let me do it. Okay. So what were those entrepreneurial ventures that you tried before Senac, after you left um, high school? So the first one that I did was a, a second-hand cell phone business. Uh, cell phones were, were, were growing in South Africa, uh, and a secondary market was starting to develop. So I had a little bit of capital and a little bit of money just from the advertising revenue that I was generating with uh, Matric 2000. So I decided to take that and buy some phones uh, and start trading them. Uh, and then that grew into a... Um, 
importing of cell phone spares, so uh, components for cell phones to do repairs, and then that grew into uh, doing outsourced repairs for a lot of these small independent cell phone shops that were around at the time. Now they're, they're primarily owned by the big mobile networks, but at the time there were these lots of these little independent cell phone shops, and we'd offer them a service where they could offer their clients the ability to do repairs. We would collect the phones that they got from their clients. We would take it to our lab. We had all the spares and the technicians. They would do the repairs, and then we would send them uh, back to those independent shops uh, the next day or, or 48 hours later. And it grew to, to servicing about 40 independent stores, uh, had two drivers collecting, uh, collecting cell phones, um, and then we started selling more more cell phones uh, and and, and uh, starting to wholesale cell phones. And I did a transaction uh, that was quite a sizable one uh, where – we, we we kind of ordered the wrong stock and the client didn't want to pay for it. Uh, it was a, a very big transaction for the size of our business uh, and uh, spent three months trying to unbundle that transaction. Uh, and most of the cash flow that we had in that business went into salvaging that deal. Uh, and after that, the business couldn't, kind of didn't really survive. I sold it to my partner, uh, for not, not for real money, but and he carried on with it. But it was my first experience on uh, going too big uh, or, or not checking everything before going into a deal or a transaction mm. that could possibly cripple you. Um, and that was that business. And then I um, got involved um, straight after that. Uh, I worked for a company uh, as a, a nonprofit organization uh, raising funds for them, an organization I was quite passionate about as a national fundraiser. Uh, and then I worked for a uh, outsourced call center business just for a short period of time. And then we started Synac in 2004 uh, when we were both, uh, myself and David, were, were both 21. Okay. So now you knew your co-founder, David, from your days in high school, correct? That's correct. All right. So what exactly built or developed the friendship between the two of you? And then after a couple of years, why did you guys decide to come back together and start a company together? So in high school, I knew that I wanted to be an entrepreneur in the tech space. And uh, David had built himself a reputation as a homegrown hacker. Um at the time, Linux and open source software, well, Linux specifically had just, the, the first kernel of Linux had just been released, and uh, David took onto it and became a Linux fundy. Uh, and the internet and internet security was also developing as an industry and a market. And he was, uh, he'd become a homegrown hacker in, in standard uh, 10, which is what, or standard 9, which is what you guys call grade 11, probably. Okay. Uh, he he had his computer confiscated by the government uh, for uh, some of the hacking work that he had done wow. and, had a, and had to have an agreement with the school that he wasn't allowed to touch a computer or have access to the internet. Wow. So for someone... So for someone who, <laughs> so he got himself into a bit of trouble, and luckily enough, he was uh, young enough that uh, all it was was that his uh, computers got uh, confiscated and there were no criminal charges put on him. Um, but for someone who wanted to start a tech business... He was the guy that I wanted to partner with because yes. he was uh, he was the tech genius. So, yeah. um, in many ways, our friendship developed out of that. My my pure interest in in this guy who um, was using Linux as opposed to Windows, where everyone else was pointing and clicking, he was typing into this black screen and doing a whole bunch of things that just looked uh, looked foreign. Uh, and the friendship developed from there. He went his own way. He went to London and, and worked for a number of businesses there in the Linux and uh, technical space. I uh, pursued my cell phone business. And uh, four years later, we hadn't seen each other. I'd heard he'd, he was working for an internet service provider back in South Africa, and he'd built this anti-spam solution that used a combination of different open source software and that managed to save the internet service provider that he was working for uh, a couple of million uh, rand or a couple hundred thousand dollars uh, using this open source software. And um, I called him up and said, let's go for a coffee and let's have a catch-up. Uh, I went to see him. We had a coffee. Uh, he chatted more about uh, the solution that he'd built. Uh, and in that conversation, we said, well, maybe there's a, an opportunity to take what he'd done there uh, and take the uh, the world of Linux and open source software and build a commercial business out of it in South Africa. And very much from that conversation, we decided to, to start Synac. Okay. So, you know, you guys... Um Went to coffee together, you had a great discussion, and then that partnership now resulted in you launching Synac. So break down the details of what it took to actually launch Synac. You said you, you wrote a business plan, 
and raise money yes. from friends? We wrote a business plan. We raised money from friends, uh, friends and family. Uh, we had the advantage that David had already proven the one main product that we had that we wanted to build by being in a working environment at Internet uh, at the ISP that he was uh, working for. So we knew he could already build it. And when we were speaking to people about raising money, um, they could tangibly see what he was doing for that ISP. So that gave it credibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we raised at the time. Uh, about a hundred thousand dollars in in seed capital from friends and family, and um, gave away quite a bit of equity in doing so. Wrote a, a, a it's about a, it was a rudimentary business plan, a, a ten page business plan. Keeping oh. in mind that both myself, uh, <laughs> both myself and David, we, we were twenty one and hadn't uh, hadn't really done much other than some of my business experience and his work that he'd done, uh, but really didn't know much about what it took to run and build and scale a business. Mm-hmm. Um, but guys bought into the idea, gave us the seed capital, and uh, about six months later, we, uh, from when we had that coffee, it took about five to six months, and we had the business started. Okay. So how did you go about um, landing your first client? So landing our first client was actually uh, quite a quite an easy thing. On, on day two, we had our first client. Oh. Um, we, we day one was spent buying a desk and a printer and two computers, and day two was uh, was closing our first client. And it was uh, a company that uh, was related to the the guys who invested in our business. Uh, they had a they had uh, an interest in another company, a medical aid administrations business, and we got introduced to them. Uh, they needed a, a complex firewall. We put a proposal together, and uh, they they signed uh, the the deal on the day. Uh, and the next day, we went to another old uh, client of mine who had worked. Um, and proposed a, a anti-spam offering, and, and he signed up in another solution. Uh, so getting clients in the beginning was actually quite a quite an easy exercise, and we thought we were onto a great ticket. I think it, it taught us two two important lessons. Number one was that we were pricing our services way too cheaply, uh, and which was part of the reason why we weren't getting a lot of no's. Uh, and number two, uh, we, we kind of just started delivering services that our clients would ask for. They would ask us, can you do this? And because we were using Linux and open source software, we could kind of do anything. So we would always come back with a yes. Uh, and before we, know, we knew it, we were doing 30 to 40 different things, um, some of which we never originally planned to do, but we were getting new business and new clients and chasing that. And then that gave us a whole set of other problems in terms of scaling the business. But getting clients was never an issue from the beginning. Oh, okay. So what were the problems that came with trying to scale this business? Because you guys are too young to 22-year-olds, I'm sure you go into a meeting and you're sitting across the table with maybe a 30, 40-year-old biz, biz dev executive. So what were some of the, cl- the challenges you faced in growing the company and then also getting people to buy into your company at that early stage? So in the early stage, I think some of the challenges were identifying how to hire the right people. Uh, and what it took to be a good employee to join our business. In the beginning, we really just tested for highly skilled technical people uh, and made it very difficult in that regard. Like if you were a very strong technical person, then we would pretty much hire you. Uh, And we realized shortly afterwards that attitude and culture trumped technical ability um, every single time and how to change the way we hired and the kind of questions we asked and what we looked for to screen for a lot more on the uh, culture side and on the uh, personality side and then make sure on the technical side. So that was a big lesson and we, 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 we hired a lot of people. We had to fire a lot of people. We had people not fitting into the company right in the beginning. Uh, we also had to learn what does it take to manage and lead people Um especially older people who um, aren't maybe used to getting instructions and uh, and working with uh, 22-year-olds. I think for the first five years, we were still always the youngest people in the company. <laughs> um, so that was uh, interesting for, for people. Um, and then we also realized by selling a few years in that we had all these different products and services that we were doing and we had delivered all these different solutions that we'd created a company that was difficult to scale because we were doing so many different things and it's almost impossible to be great at any one thing when you're doing so many. Uh, and we had to make a decision on how we were going to scale the business and took the decision to move away from being a services business and back into our original idea when David built that anti-spam solution okay. to go back into being a product business and make that change and that transition 
Uh, and we thought it would take six months. Uh, it took us two years. It cost us four times the amount of cash that we were expecting, and it almost crippled the business trying to make that change. Uh, and we, we vastly underestimated the complexity of changing an organization when it's on a certain trajectory and has a certain type of momentum. Um, and those were kind of the, the lessons that we learned in the beginning days, and that transition period was a very painful uh, and trying time for us um, based on, on what we had done in the beginning. Wow, sounds like there was quite a bit of challenge and headaches in those early days, trying to at least scale and grow this business and also pivot back into your original idea of selling a product versus versus providing many services to meet the different needs and demands of clients. So, so did you think that um, it would have been better to a, keep only a few of those services as opposed to doing too many things that the clients wanted initially? Or do you think the way you guys cost-corrected that idea? I guess hindsight is twenty twenty. but what I'm just trying to figure <laughs> out is that... <laughs> what I'm trying to figure out is that, did you, or looking back, have you ever considered if maybe you kept a couple of the services and a couple, and the product itself, that that would have been a better fit at those early days, in those early days? So like you said, I think hindsight... Uh, it's all easy. But if I think about us, we did raise a bit of money and we had no urgency really to go out and build revenue uh, because we had raised a little bit of money. If we were bootstrapping from the beginning, uh, it might have been the right strategy to go out and sell what we could uh, to get a bit of cash into the business so that we could develop product, etc. cetera. Uh, but we'd raised a bit of money and we kind of just went out from day two or day one uh, selling and chasing revenue. And if I look back and say, well, what would have been better? I think it would definitely have been better if we focused on that core product, uh, the anti-spam solution, um, built out our offering on that, tested our revenue models on that, tested the demand in the client space from there, innovated on that single focus uh, rather than diversifying right from the beginning and saying, well, we have this uh, myriad of products and services that we're able to deliver in a small team. And uh, definitely when I speak to other entrepreneurs and they're talking about all the opportunities that come to them because you're a small business, because you're agile, because you're flexible, because uh, you can th- do things uh, quicker than many of your competitors, you get requests from your clients um, and you're trying to build your revenue and trying to build your business. So uh, saying yes is very tempting. And I think what's more important is to know what you're not going to do in terms of trying to build your business. But the paradox is you also have to do that while testing your model uh, and getting feedback so that you're not so rigid so that you can actually see, well, maybe our original idea was wrong and there's a better, bigger opportunity over here. So it's a paradox on how you go about doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, but if, to answer your question, I definitely think if we had focused more earlier on, it would have been a better strategy for the early days. Mm, okay, so I guess what the two things I'm taking out of this are a, you need to focus, focus, focus. And there's an acronym I always refer to when I hear the word focus. That's follow one course until success. And B, just, you, you, can't, you can't really be everything to everybody. Like Bill Cosby said, the best way to, to fail is to try and please everybody. So you have to like sometimes have the power and the will to say no. And there's a great book that just came out recently called The Power of No!, how to simplify your life by saying no to things that are not really relevant. So those are the two key things I've taken away from from you right now. But let's focus a little bit more on this Linux and open source um, business that you guys created. Now, open source, from what I understand, means that the system is just freely available out there and anyone can use it and modify it. So why... Um, did you guys feel you were able to have a competitive advantage taking something that's freely available and selling it back to clients as opposed to your clients developing that system themselves or even getting a closed system from Microsoft or Oracle or someone else? That's a great question. So I think the, the, the basis of open source is that there's a community of people that are developing um, they're developing the software, and it's a completely different philosophy in how to go about developing software. Now, it gives a number of advantages in terms of the strength of the code base, um, 
the performance of the software and the um, overall uh, security of, of the software that's being developed. And in a number of tests and a number of um, years, we've seen open source software is generally strong open source uh, software projects versus strong proprietary projects. Open source software outperforms in terms of number of bugs in the software, the security, um, and the efficiency and speed of the software. So from a foundation point of view, we believed that by offering our clients open source software, they were getting a better technical solution. So first and foremost, it was a better technology to back, um, but knew that many of our clients or many of the businesses in South Africa specifically didn't have the necessary skills to be able to leverage and take advantage of those benefits of open source software. Okay. And that's where the idea to be able to provide this professional services organization to clients came about. On the other side, on the product development side, where we're talking about the anti-spam side, you have a number of these brilliant open source applications that solve this particular problem but don't necessarily bundle everything together or don't necessarily have the best management systems or the best reporting systems um, that meet the requirements of the enterprise. So you've got this underlying extremely strong technical solution, but maybe it's missing some of the layers that a business would require. So we can take that open source software and say, well, it's really solving 80% of the problem. Let's spend our time and focus on developing the 20% that businesses require that aren't delivered by this open source solution. Let's put it on the cloud. Let's make it a SaaS-based offering uh, so that we can benefit from that. That gives us a cost advantage. It gives us a speed advantage. Uh, and it, we can translate that and deliver that to our clients by leveraging off open source software. Uh, and that was the thinking on the development side. So that's kind of how we saw how we could leverage open source software and how we could take something that's free and widely available yeah. and commercialize it for our clients. Well, that's great. And it seems to me like you guys made a move to the cloud rather early because right now the cloud is kind of like the hot thing. But if you guys did this um, four years after you started, that means the cloud was just beginning to start and develop. Was there some, um, what I call it, friction or challenge um, selling the cloud-based solution to clients at that point in time when obviously they didn't know what that meant or it wasn't as widely known as it is today? Sure. So 2004 was actually when we, we launched our first cloud offering, which are, which was our anti-spam offering. Um, so that's long before cloud was became a term or yes. a known, uh, a known uh, cons uh, consumption model. Uh, and people just used to call it hosted. So we had a hosted email security platform uh, that was multi-tenanted and it was quite pioneering at its time. Uh, and many of our conversations was about educating clients about security, uh, where's their data, how safe is it, um, we had a lot of conversations and a lot of limitations in terms of the number of companies we could sell to because bandwidth in the country at the time was yes. extremely expensive. Uh, so often it was uh, a barrier to us even being able to sell to the customers because they were worried about the bandwidth consumption and the cost of bandwidth. Uh, and many for many, many years, uh, we struggled with the, the hosted offering. Uh, in the beginning, we, we, had, we offered uh, clients a hybrid where we could also install on-premise for them because of the bandwidth limitations and sometimes because of the, the confidence of clients to move to the cloud. We changed that. Uh, two to three years ago, where now we only offer our SaaS-based solutions, but we still have some legacy clients where we're managing on-premise solutions. So in many ways, by pioneering the space, uh, clients weren't ready for it. Today, it's a very, very different conversation, uh, and clients have embraced it and see the value of it, and uh, there's not as much education that needs to happen. But in those early few, first few years, we were educating every day. Oh, wow. Okay, so what were... Or could, if you can, do you remember one big challenge that came with um, trying to move clients to the cloud-hosted platform? So I think the biggest challenge we had is that we had these big service providers um, like Microsoft and Oracle and SAP, and their business and their entire revenue is was based on on-premise services and on-premise solutions. And the CIO, uh, these companies have the ear of the CIO. So they're telling them that open source, for one, is risky. Open source is dangerous. So open source is like communism. Uh, on, the, <laughs> on the other hand, they're telling them that the cloud isn't safe, it's not secure, um, it's not... Um, 
It's not the way of the enterprise. You have no access and control on your data and, and creating a lot of what we call FUD, uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yeah. So a lot, of, a lot of sales tactics in that arena is using fear, uncertainty, and doubt. So going up and being the startup and this lonely voice uh, against these big brand names was a real big challenge to get into the, C, the, the enterprise type of space and get a, a space within the CIOs uh, and, and get them to believe in our story because you had the these big companies who are spending millions on marketing, who are taking these CIOs on uh, golf days and uh, retreats, etc., and they're mm-hmm. telling them all the fears that they uh, know are they using to, to defend their, their existing business models. Um, and that was, that was a very big challenge on how do we get around that. Well, so how did you guys get around that? Because it seems like you obviously did. Um, So one, I think the industry got around it. Eventually, company Salesforce came out, um, becoming a billion-dollar CRM platform on the cloud, beating Oracle and uh, and Sage and all of those. So that started creating creating, uh, goodwill in the marketplace to see that this isn't – that it's not only us talking about it. But other Mm -hmm. than that, we spent a lot of time at talks um, doing – uh, public speaking events, talking about open source software and the cloud uh, and the trends that are coming uh, and why this makes sense using business cases of our smaller clients and how much we're able to save them and the kind of advantages that they've got. So any speaking engagement and opportunity where we could evangelize uh, open source software in the cloud, we pretty much took up and spent a lot of time just out there take, t- taking the same message, saying the same thing and really trying to get conversations going uh, and taking that fear and saying, well, this is actually the reality. This is what we're seeing in terms of what we're doing. This is the benefits we're getting to our clients. Uh, and let's have that conversation with you and see if we can repeat that. Okay. That's great. So I just want to get one more thing out of this conversation. And that is as a small startup, you're going across these, you're going to, against these big names, you know, Microsoft, Oracle, etc. And, yeah. you know, they're, they're basically fear-mongering CIOs into not working with you. So yeah. were there any unique strategies or tactics that you you implemented to make, like, an end run around these guys to, like, really, really showcase and deliver your product? So the advantage that we had, and it's a great question, our anti-spam product that we had built, uh, we were able to take on a client within 24 hours. So if you had a spam problem, we would meet with you that day. We'd say, listen, we'll put you onto a free 30-day trial, and this is in the enterprise space. All it takes for you to come on to our anti-spam product is a technical term. You have to change your MX records. It's just a small change that a company needs to make. Uh, it's a free 30-day trial. If you're not happy, it's very easy for you to change back. You can change your MX records back, uh, and let us try and see if we can solve your spam problem. There's no risk to you. Uh, come on. Uh, these are the clients that we already have, uh, and, and let's see what happens. So we could have that conversation with the CIO that day. The next day, we could put them on the anti-spam solution, and uh, at the time, the guy was getting spam in his inbox. The next day, he wasn't getting spam in his inbox. Oh, so it wow. was a very real um, benefit that they could see immediately. Uh, speaking to Synac today, tomorrow my spam was gone. It took 24 hours. It was a simple change. And now um, we're more secure on our email. Uh, and then we can have conversations about everything else. Then they were calling us back and saying, cool, what else can you do for us? We've seen uh, that you guys delivered on what you said. The pricing is great. The, the speed and flexibility that we do things, that was great. And that's what we used very often uh, to get into clients and then start upselling them other services. So it was great that we had this tangible product that could show real results very quickly and that we could offer on a, on a free 30-day trial uh, to take people's fear away and say, try before you buy. Uh, and that strategy worked very well for us. Oh, wow. So basically your speed of execution pretty much saved the day. Speed of execution and the ability to take the risk away from them purchasing. So okay. to be able to say, there's no risk in purchasing, try it first, um, and then we can talk. Okay. Oh, awesome, awesome, awesome. And um, I guess most people know Moore's Law that Technology changes quite rapidly. Every six months, technology is changing and prices are going down by half. So how does SANAC stay competitive in an ever-changing technological playing field? It's a great question, and it's a very tough one. Uh, I think uh, from our point of view, it's getting 
an understanding of what will deliver more value to our clients on the one hand, and on the other hand, increasing our scale. So the more we scale, uh, the better we are in terms of being able to provide competitive pricing and, and competitive solutions to our clients. Um, but on the other hand, it's what about how can we deliver more value to these clients? What will entrench us more within them? What kind of services and offerings uh, can we do that will take our scope beyond what we're doing right now and make us more valuable to our businesses? So what conversations do we need to have with those clients to understand what it is uh, that will do that? Um, how do we measure our existing technology to see what works and what doesn't work? Uh, and the combination of that, detecting what are the new f- future services and offerings that we're going to deliver to our clients. Um, we're currently, uh, in June, we'll be on over a million users on our mail platforms, which gives us a sizable base to be able to start experimenting with additional services and, and offerings that we can deliver to them and, and increase our conversations to be able to say, well, what's the next things that we can deliver to clients? Um, and while technology changes every six months, which is, uh, which, which is hard to keep up with, remember your clients are also running businesses. They're also doing things. And for them to change every six months is also very difficult. Mm. So it's more about understanding where they want to go um, and being able to work with them in a timeline that works for them and and educating each other uh, so that we're able to deliver solutions when they're ready for it. Uh, Even though things are changing every six months, it doesn't mean your business, your clients and the market is adapting every six months. We brought the cloud and open source software to businesses in 2004. It's 2015 now and the cloud is only really becoming uh, an early thing for businesses. We're not even in the late majority of businesses being on the cloud. We're only in the early growth phases of the cloud. So that just shows you how long it takes for business and industry to adapt to things that are changing so quickly. Okay, that's great. So, you guys recently sold a 50% stake of your business to Dimension Data IS. Why did you decide to get that investment from a big company like that? It's a great question. I think we, we spent a lot of time and pain transitioning from the services company over a two-year period. We built our product offerings. We invested a lot of money in, in building our, our products again. And uh, as a technical business, we, we were looking for a partner that had a reputation and scale in terms of a client base. So Dimension Data and IS uh, have over 5,000 clients in South Africa. Dimension Data is a global organization. Uh, IS alone have 150 salespeople. Dimension Data um, have a, a multiple of that. So we were looking for a partner where we could say, well, now that we've built all these products and services, who can we partner with that can take these products to market and shorten the time that it would take us to get to scale. Uh, And that was the main thinking behind it. Uh, We also liked the organizations and it felt like we were like-minded companies in terms of how um, they, uh, their values and how they behave. Uh, and we felt very similar. So it was very much about, well, we've got this technology. You guys have the network and, uh, and client base. And uh, it seemed like one, one plus one would equal three in that kind of equation. Okay. And so that investment, was there some conditions that you guys had to stay for a certain number of years or it was, how exactly was it structured? Definitely there was, uh, there were conditions that came with a lot of conditions. (laughs) I can imagine. (laughs) There was some capital that was invested into the business. Uh, our angel investors or seed, seed funders um, got bought out by our Dimension Data. And um, the uh, key management team, uh, myself and David included, uh, had to agree. Uh, it was actually quite clever what they did. They didn't, there, was no, there was no restriction in terms of um, length of contract. But if we were to leave and resign within a three-year period, uh, our shares were fixed at a certain price value, which was probably 20% of what the value of what they were uh, on the open market. So wow. um, pretty much saying with three years, uh, you aren't able to leave the business. And it was uh, 40 months to be exact. Um, and that was the main restriction that was there. We had to appoint some people onto our board from Dimension Data, two people from Dimension Data uh, onto our board, um, which has been actually a great thing because they come with a, a wealth of insight and, and knowledge experience. So when we're, we're um, in greatly strengthening our board, uh, but needed that as another condition. Um, and uh, those were the main the main conditions, as well as a condition where if David and I were to leave the employment of the company, we were forced to make an offer to sell our shares to Dimension Data, um, which was a which was a big one as well uh, in in the clauses that we had to uh, negotiate on. Mm. Okay, so a big company 
comes in, they buy into you guys. You guys are now working together as partners. Does yep. that change the entrepreneurial DNA that you guys once had that you could move faster quickly with the added layer would mean maybe added decision time? So the way that, that our relationship works with IS and DD, uh, it's quite fortunate where they are uh, allowing us to be quite independent and, and aren't as hands-on as maybe some other uh, private institutions would be, giving us a lot of autonomy to act and behave and manage the business the way we see fit. So we haven't lost a lot of that, a lot of that entrepreneurial spirit and energy. There is, there is a, a, a much bigger requirement in terms of our budgeting, forecasting, um, and reporting into uh, into IS. And if uh, if all of a sudden myself and David come up with an idea and we think this would be a great opportunity to attack and we haven't budgeted for it, uh, we, we can't necessarily do it unless uh, we take the budget from somewhere else. And so in that way, it has slowed down our ability to execute. Um, it's not necessarily only a bad thing. It's brought more maturity in terms of how we plan uh, and what we do and, and um, our planning for, for execution for the next year to two years, uh, but does come with that overhead of, well, if we never thought about it and uh, we don't necessarily have the budget available, we can't just go and do and execute like we used to. We used to be a, maybe a little bit more cowboy uh, when, we were, uh, when we were starting the business, and now we have to be more disciplined in terms of our planning and execution. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and start talking about the personal side of your entrepreneurial journey. So you have a co-founder that is extremely technical in David, mm -hmm. and you're obviously the biz dev guy and the sales guy. So how does yep. that partnership work on a day-to-day -day basis? Are there any frictions or how does that relationship help make the Synac company and the Synac team a stronger team? So it's a great question, I think. Because we're so different, it brings great strengths to to our business. It also brings great challenges because we are so different. So um, the strengths are that we we complement each other where we're weak. David is very technical. Uh, he's very detailed-focused. I'm more big-picture, and I'm more on the business development side. So right from the outset, we knew where our strengths were and what our roles should be, uh, and we were able to focus and grow into those and, and execute on them. Uh, and I could go into a sales and business development side of things and know that David would execute on it brilliantly and vice versa. So from that point of view, uh, it works very, very well. Um, people who see things very differently every time we're making big decisions or we're thinking about what to do, that comes with a bit of conflict because we're, we're coming from two very different spaces, but then makes the decision-making a lot stronger when we do decide because it's now not like we're just talking into an echo chamber in terms of what should be done and how should be done, etc. Um, so learning how to navigate uh, with each other where we can be open with each other, we can communicate with each other when we're disagreeing. Um, it's very much like uh, probably building a relationship with a life partner, mm -hmm. learning what does it take, how does this person like to be communicated with, uh, how, do, how do they think, how do you think, uh, being able to scream at each other one moment and then go and be in front of a client and be on a unified front and then have a beer later and, uh, and be best mates again uh, and business partners again. Uh, it, takes, it took some time to learn how to build that kind of relationship. Uh, so definitely we've had our fair share of, of highs yeah, uh, and, our, and our fair share of friction uh, in building a partnership. But the main thing that we have is that we both trust each other. We have, uh, we're both uh, people with strong integrity uh, and there's no doubt in terms of uh, us being um, the right partners in terms of building this business uh, and saying that, you know, I've got the right guy in the company who I know has my back and he has um, – and I have his back, um, even though sometimes uh, we want to kill each other. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess it's the same with every relationship where for you guys to actually be very, very close to achieve a common goal, you know, you can't hide your feelings as to if you have a point of view for one thing. And that's usually going to lead to a lot of friction. But it seems like you guys are really managing the friction well, and obviously you're doing a great job. Sunak is growing by leaps and bounds. So let's talk a little bit about some of the more personal part of your entrepreneurial journey. And now if – okay, so I'll probably just ask you a few rapid-fire questions and sure. you just give me the well, first thing that comes to your mind. So take, for example, your co-founder, David – 
What are some of the strengths you admire in him? I would say uh, technical genius, um, his ability to describe the detail, um, his passion for service and delivery, uh, so to, to really um, make the client feel heard and looked after, um, and his ability to cope under pressure. Um, when, when there's a lot of pressure and there's a, a big problem that needs to be solved, there's no one better that you want than David looking at that problem. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. And you've called yourself a rock star a geek in the past. So if you were to take one trait from a highly technical person like David, or if you were to suggest one trait that he'd take from your personality, what would that be? One trait you want to take from him and one trait you want him to take from you. So one trait that I think I would want to take from him um, is his ability to remain very cool and calm under pressure um, and be able to dive into the problem, uh, uh, which could seem like an extremely complex problem and pinpoint uh, his his way of troubleshooting to find the solution, I think would be a, a trait that I would like to take from him. Um a, a trait that maybe he could take from me, um, I'm not actually sure what would be one that I would think he should take from me. It would probably be his um, his willingness to have conflict. Okay. Uh, he, he tends to shy away from conflict. So if he thinks someone's done a bad job or doesn't agree with something, uh, he might not speak up as much or he doesn't speak up as, as much as he should uh, because he wants to avoid the conflict. Uh, and I would say that would be the trait where I'd say, well, like, if, he could be, if he could be more confrontational, uh, that, would, that would serve him well. Oh, great, great. And so who's an entrepreneur you admire the most and why do you, why do you admire that person? So my answer's probably going to sound like a bit of a cliché, um, but it, it's right now it's uh, Mark Zuckerberg, um, and the reason is that in 2000, when I, like I described, I'd built a, a, a social networking site, so to speak, um, and really didn't see the vision of what it could be. And we have a person four years later who did a much much better job and actually saw the vision and has built a, a, a multi-billion-dollar business that's changed the world. So in one hand, I have a little bit of Mark Zuckerberg envy. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, it's a uh, it's it's not often you have a, a technical genius who is able to retain control of his own company, change the industry. Um, he's very open using his own platform and communicating both his business and his personal self. So it's someone who's, who's more open about his uh, strengths and weaknesses and shortcomings uh, and has become also a big philanthropist and, and is trying to do more than just what Facebook does in terms of making an impact and change the world. Uh, so I'd, I'd like to be someone like that who I can say, uh, I've made an impact in my lifetime, uh, and I find him to be quite an inspiring entrepreneur to follow. Nice, nice. And so as a leader, what is the one thing that you do over and over again that you would recommend for other people that lead companies to try and emulate? So there's, a, there's, there's maybe two parts to that answer. The first thing uh, which isn't isn't necessarily visible and just for within a leader, but what I do every morning is I spend the first hour spending time on visualizing my day and my week, um, going through what I'm grateful for uh, in my personal life and in my business life, um, a little bit of time on meditation, and then um, time exercising and being outdoors. And I find that whole ritual uh, grounds me in the present and what to be grateful for and where, where I am, as well as gives the ability to focus on the future and where we need to be uh, so that when I'm stepping into the office or stepping into the day, uh, I feel like I'm coming in from a place of strength, that when there are any things that are being brought to my table or if there are any issues or anything that needs to happen, um, already started off the day on a strong foundation as opposed to waking up checking your mail, going straight to the office and or being bombarded, it almost gives you that kind of headspace. So that has worked very well for me in terms of navigating myself in the business. Um, 
And then on a leadership side of things, it's challenging yourself to be open and transparent within the business. Uh, we have a um, open policy in terms of sharing our financials. Uh, we do that. Uh, any, any of our employees can log into our financial reporting system and see where we are uh, in the company, and we're completely open and transparent about that. Um, we're very open in terms of what's working, what's not working. We have a daily huddle where we share that information uh, and communicate daily. Uh, so it's really about empowering your team and being transparent in what's happening in your world. Uh, and it took us a while to, to be more open uh, with, our, with our employees. Often we'd shield them from the good, uh, sort of mainly from the bad. We'd shield them from the bad in, in hope that they wouldn't, uh, thinking that if we told them they would uh, have this kind of fear that uh, would make everyone leave. Um, but we found the opposite, that in, in being more open um, and transparent as a leadership, uh, you've, been, you've created more trust, you've created more empowerment, and you'll find that your team can handle and support a lot more and you don't have to carry everything on your shoulders. Mm. Interesting. That's great. And now, what's the one book, tape, software, or inspirational message that has been really, really crucial and that you've relied on in your entrepreneurial journey? Or, or so, some, of, some of your favorite books? Uh, anyway, anyway. Sure. So I wouldn't say there's one. Uh, there's many that come to mind. Yes, yeah, so um, I imagine you would have a lot. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a massive Tony Robbins fan. So from a very young age, uh, I picked up uh, a Tony Robbins book, and, he, and and his book had a transformative impact on my life uh, in terms of how I build rituals and thinking and everything along those lines. So that was very impactful. Hmm. Uh, in the more in the business domain. Um, more recently off the top of my head, uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel um, on how to avoid competition and building monopoly businesses and just reframing how we see ourselves and what kind of things we're trying to do has been very instrumental. Um, a book, Mastering the Rockefeller Habits mm-hmm. uh, by, by Vern Harnish mm-hmm. uh, on really on how to scale your business and what kind of systems and processes and things you need to bring into your day-to-day running of your business to scale it. Um the best book I've probably read on leadership uh, is a book uh, by a lady, Liz Wiseman, uh, called Multipliers. Um, it's probably uh, the book that I would recommend people read on um, how to be a better uh, manager and leader and how to multiply the impact of your staff as opposed to um, detracting or, or um, dividing the kind of output that you can get from your staff. And then um, – Delivering Happiness by Tony Asaya mm-hmm. on, on how to build a great culture and, and a service-focused culture. And uh, for smaller businesses, probably the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber on the difference between being a technician, the manager, and the entrepreneur and how to build your business so that it's what he calls franchisable, repetitable, mm-hmm. um, and where it's not dependent on you as the entrepreneur to be able to grow. Yeah. Those are probably the ones at the top of my head. Wow, this is some great suggestions. Those are some great. And Tony Robbins actually came out with a new book recently on money. I think you should also try and read it. It's called Mastering the Game of Money or something like that. It's actually very, very good. I will. Uh, I will give it a give it a bash. It's very, very good. Great. So, what was the worst job you ever had, and what did you learn from that? And <laughs> <laughs> um, the worst job I ever had was only for a night. Um, it was I was working. Um, I was probably about 15 or maybe 16, and I was a waiter for a company uh, or for a restaurant in, in an area here in Johannesburg, and I had no training. I got to the, the, this company or this restaurant on the day. They gave me a menu. They gave me a book, and they said, cool, go and uh, be a waiter. And it was a very busy restaurant, and I made a number of stuff-ups, um, but uh, did my best in terms of being this waiter, and it was like a six- or a seven-hour shift. My feet were sore. I was tired. I'd been shouted at by customers. I'd uh, been shouted at by the, the kitchen staff. Uh, I was just felt like I was just getting shouted at by every person. Um, and the way that this restaurant worked is you collected all the money and you kept it for the night, and at the end, the manager would ring up the till, um, and then you would basically pay whatever the tally came up, and whatever was left was... Uh, your tips for the evening. And I remember having, uh, I think it was about seven or 8,000 Rand, which is about 700 or $800. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I went to the manager, I rang up the till, etc., and I was left with um, 
something like $50 uh, after I had seven or $800 and I had $50 left. And I just felt at that time, I remember the feeling thinking like, I'm just on the wrong side of this transaction. Uh, I'm the one who's got four sore feet, screaming, shouted at, etc. cetera. Uh, and I'm the one who's left with $50 over here. And it just didn't feel like, oh, well, this was a smart way uh, to be uh, adding value and, and building wealth in my life. So the next day I, there and then I said to him, look, this is great, but I'm not going to be coming back tomorrow. Uh, and, reaffirmed my my belief that if I was going to build any kind of wealth uh, in my life it needed to be uh, I needed to be the entrepreneur not the waiter wow <laughs> interesting story <laughs> okay so tell us something about you that very few people know uh, something about me that very few people know yeah. um, probably that uh, I um, or you used to be, and, and, and maybe still am quite good, but I was a, a, a avid computer geek and StarCraft player, uh, more specifically. So I used to spend days, hours, weeks playing StarCraft um, and almost um, probably clocked my 10,000 hours playing wow. StarCraft. Wow. Um, so that's not someone, some something people would know uh, um, not many people would know other than the ones that I played against in the StarCraft world. Um, <laughs> but that's probably the, the, the main thing. Um, and the other thing is that I'm a massive Tony Robbins fan. I don't think I've told many people that. <laughs> uh, he, he comes with uh, this world of self-help stigma. Um, so it's not something that I probably share with most people. But oh, wow. uh but I'm a, a, a massive self-help fan. Wow. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just started getting into Tony Robbins too. And on his book tour for his new book, he went on a bunch of podcasts talking about the things that he's been doing recently. So if you just Google it on iTunes, Tony Robbins, you see Tim Ferriss, James Altucher, Lewis House, all those guys had interviews with Tony Robbins and they're really, really good for what he's doing recently. Thank you. I will check, check them it out. out. Yeah. All right. So um, I'm getting to the final two or three questions. Sure. And then we'll be done. So despite not going to college, you actually went back to get an MBA. Why did you go back to get an MBA? And um, the follow-up on that would be you wrote your thesis on the role of Web 2.0 in building startup brand in South Africa. So could you just – I read it, but I want you to give like – the listeners, just a brief snapshot of that. So why did you go back and get your MBA and then the brief snapshot of your thesis? Sure. Um, so why I got my MBA was twofold. Uh, there's two parts to it. There's uh, the one side where we were four or five years into building our business. We'd gone through this difficult and painful transition. Company uh, felt like it wasn't uh, growing to the point that we wanted to grow. And uh, I thought an MBA would be uh, equipping me with more skills to be able to lead and grow this business. And it seemed like the good thing to do. Um, even though I hadn't gone to, to university, um, I realized that maybe I didn't know everything. Uh, as a young guy, you think you know everything. Um, so maybe going into the formal uh, academic world, I'll be able to learn some critical skills in terms of scaling the business. Um, and the other side is I was dating a dating a girl who um, we'd been dating for a long time, four years, uh, and she decided to go do her master's in the U.S. And uh, there was a chance that maybe I would uh, possibly go to the, go to America um, in, a, in a few years um, and uh, needed something other than just my entrepreneurial side that I could, uh, I could fall back on. So, um, the, so probably the real side of what prompted me to do it there and then was that it was for a girl. It was always uh, about a girl. <laughs> <laughs> There's always a girl in the story, um, so it was for that. Uh, and the other side was on me building the business. So that's what prompted me to do it. Um, uh, subsequently, uh, the girl stayed in America and I kept the MBA. So um, it worked out in the end. Um, the, the, the the role of uh, Web2 or social media in building a brand for mm -hmm. a startup uh, from, from my research uh, it gave a couple of interesting things. Uh, the first thing was that um, in the beginning, building your profile as the entrepreneur on social media is um, a more effective way to building your business than trying from the onset to build the brand of the business. Mm. Um, so if you can uh, build your reputation around yourself, 
um, on social media, it's much easier to do. People are attracted to people more than they're attracted to brands on in, in the social media space. So that was learning number one and, and uh, spending time in doing that. Uh, learning number two, uh, and it's not so revolutionary today, it's probably more common knowledge, but uh, it was about creating content uh, that created your business as an expert in its own field. So um, very much opening up what would normally be seen as proprietary to your company that you wouldn't necessarily want to share, being more open with that and sharing that online. So if you're a design business, as an example, mm-hmm. uh, you do web design, let's use that as an example, um, talking through and, and showing people how you guys think about web design and what makes uh, great web design and what um, how you, you inculcate a culture of expert web design within your business and the things that you consider, et cetera, basically revealing your trade secrets or your, your, your secret source um, online and creating that kind of content. Uh, while I was doing the thesis, we interviewed an online marketing business, and they created a handbook of how to go about doing online marketing. Uh, and it was a very detailed, it became like the, the textbook of online marketing. And they created it, they spent thousands of, hundreds and hundreds of hours um, putting this book together. And then they created it, and they moved it online, and they made it completely free for anyone to download. Basically saying, you know, all of our expertise is available in this book, you could go and read it and do it. And by doing that, establish themselves as the thought leader, uh, establish themselves as the authority. Um, so it's counterintuitive to take your own secret source and put it online for people to be able to consume mm-hmm. as a way of building your brand in a marketplace um, by using social media. And those are the kind of the two major uh, outcomes uh, that came out of the research um, from what I can remember way back when, five years ago when we did it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that seems like interesting stuff because it's – Literally just today that most of the things you talked about are actually beginning to to take hold. Like um, Gary Vaynerchuk's book last year was Jab, 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 Right Hook. And it was just basically talking about how businesses should be more on the personal side of connecting with their customers as opposed to using the company's brand to to showcase the brand and talk about the brand, brand, brand. Rather connect with people on a more personal level and then let let that relationship um, build and grow naturally. So that's um, some pretty good stuff. And I advise anybody that's interested in reading how these things shook out earlier to check out your your thesis. It's all right up there on repository.up.ac.za. <laughs> thank you. I think, I think that's the first person who's ever said to anyone to read my thesis. So oh, thank I, you. I found it interesting. <laughs> I found it interesting, so I think a lot of people that are techies would actually read it too, just to see where things are coming from for those days. Right. So, um, so if you had to travel back in time to advise yourself when you were first starting out, what's the one key critical advice you tell yourself? There's probably two key critical advices. I know you asked me for one. I'm going to give you two. Sure. Uh, the first would be um, to not necessarily raise money so so soon um, and so quickly. Um, so before we even started, we had already raised $100,000 um, when I don't think it was entirely necessary. So to first maybe uh, build your prototype, go to market, get get more uh, success before you're going out and raising money. And, and there's a couple of reasons for that. One, uh, you won't have to give up as much equity mm-hmm. um, so that when you do need to raise uh, real capital later on, you've got more equity to give away um, so that uh, you're not left with, with, with too little uh, later on when you need to raise real capital. Um, and number two, having that money in the beginning maybe didn't force us to focus enough on our business model uh, and what works and specifically uh, honing in on the right revenue model uh, in terms of building our product. So I would say that was the the, the curse of, of raising money too soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second thing would be what we've spoken about, but would it be uh, focused first on getting your business model correct. What is that revenue model? Um, and, and spend more time on that uh, and building out how you see that happening uh, and getting feedback from the market than going out with the kind of shotgun approach and just seeing what will catch. Um, so that more focused approach would be those two main things that we would, would probably have changed uh, if I were to go about doing this again. Wow. So first one, don't raise money too early. You outrun the risk of dilution. And second, focus on getting your business model and your revenue model correctly before you go to market. Oh, well, before you try and scale. Before, and, before you try and scale. Sorry, I beg your pardon. Yeah. 
Okay. And the last question is, what advice would you give to recent grads that are just starting out or thinking of launching a venture or somebody that's an African maybe in the United States, Europe, or outside of the continent and is looking back home and seeing things growing and is like, hmm, maybe I should come back home and do something. So what's, what's the one advice you'd advise such a person? I think... I think for someone who's got that itch to say, well, I want to try something, and particularly uh, in the African economy uh, on the continent, um, there is a world of opportunity here, but there's also a world of challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think the the one piece of advice that I would give, and it's it's a lesson that I learned, is to extend your timeline in your thinking of what it's going to take to get success. Um, When we started, we were 21. I thought by the age of 23, 24, we'd be billionaires. Uh, You're only here. uh, Every success story you hear, uh, there's a a saying that we say, you know, um, every success is a 10-year overnight success story. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you don't hear about all the 10 years. You only hear about the overnight success. So for people who are thinking about becoming entrepreneurs and going down this road, I would extend my timeline of what that's going to take in terms of becoming successful. And if you're still excited and you still think – that I can do this for five to seven to ten years from now, uh, and this is the kind of thing that I'm willing to put my time and energy and effort into for the next five to ten years, then I would say it's the right thing for you to do. If you're thinking it's a good rich quick scheme uh, or something where um, you're just going to start something and all of a sudden it's going to be this this massive overnight success story, those are the one in a million. Um, and I would say maybe re-question your motivations about what you're going to be going on uh, and doing and then see if you're still keen to do it. Great, great. And with that said, Yossi, we've come to the end of the show. It's really been a pleasure having you talk about your company, your experiences, you know, everything that you've shared with us thus far, even your thesis. And and, uh, we just want to wish you guys more continued success in the coming years. Definitely love to talk to you guys again and see how things are going with you. You know, maybe have your co-founder, David, come here and share some little nuggets of wisdom someday. But it's really been a pleasure having you on board. And I just want to say thank you and a big shout-out to you and the Senec team for really giving us this one hour to to chop it up and learn more about your business, your company, and your life. It's really, really my pleasure. And thank you for the opportunity. Um, and I've really enjoyed the interview. And, and good luck, uh, as you said in the beginning, um, with uh, moving to Nigeria and starting your business. Um, thank, thank you. And we're going to have to turn the interview around and uh, share your stories. <laughs> Maybe in 10 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> for sure. Oh, sure. Thanks, man. I really appreciate that. So um, the interview is over now. I'll send you an email with all the links. Once I edit it and put it up online, and you can obviously share it with everyone on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, whatever. Awesome. So it's great. Thank you, man. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, and thank you. Right. Best of luck. You Keep too. in touch. I will. Have a great day. You too. All right. Bye. Ciao. Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordeshi.com right now for more incredible resources, and we'll see you next time on Ordeshi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.